lawyer by training, writer and teacher by choice. Originally from New York, I am a proud wife and mother living in Los Angeles. Join me as we delve into the Holy Torah's teachings and apply them to our lives. I keep it short and sweet, but always deep. Welcome. very excited about today's episode because we're going to be talking about the story behind the story, the backstory of my new book, Princess Without a Crown, Returning to My Jewish Roots. First, I would like to speak a little bit about the process behind writing the book and then a little bit about why I wrote it. And then I plan to read a short chapter with some commentary. When I was in high school, especially my junior and senior year of high school, I had this vision where I really wanted to write a book and that would become a movie that would change the world. I just like had this dream. I wasn't sure what form it would take, but I knew it would be somewhat based on my life. And I decided to major in creative writing at Emory University, really with this goal in mind of knowing I eventually wanted to write some sort of book and knowing that I love to read and write. So it just made sense. And as I discuss in my book, I kind of had in mind already that I was just going to go to law school because I was like programmed, <laughs> programmed that way from a young age um, by my well-meaning mother. So I could major in what I wanted, you know, so I decided to do creative writing. And it was a little bit difficult because the structure of the program, you know, the teacher would say, okay, go write a five page story. And I'm like, whoa, okay, how, you know, like I never really was given that kind of like freedom, but yet I was under like a time constraint. So a lot of times I would feel a lot of anxiety and pressure and I I didn't come up with such, (laughs) such great things. So obviously you can imagine like these stories being workshopped. It was just not uh, so good at building my confidence as a writer. Um, And so by the time I graduated, I kind of felt like, you know, maybe I'm not such a good creative writer after all. Um, I was just feeling even more insecure and writers are inherently insecure. So then I went to law school and I had no time to think, no time to breathe (laughs) about anything creative. Um, but it was interesting because in that type of like pressure cooker environment that I was in for three years at Penn, I really felt like this deep urge to, to create, to write. And even at one point I started journaling for like 10 minutes a day, just because I needed that outlet. It just kept resurfacing. But I still didn't have in mind to write anything, although I did start to see that events were kind of unfolding in an amazing way. And at certain points throughout my Jewish journey, I would kind of stop and say to Hashem, like, one day I'm going to have to write about this. But it seemed, you know, just kind of like a pipe dream. Nothing, nothing actual was happening with it. And when I finished law school, I went to Israel. And I'll never forget, I was very jet lagged. And I was just kind of like scrolling through Facebook in the middle of the night, Israel time. And I happened to see this ad for something called the sense writing program, which is basically a creative writing program designed by Madeline Kent, who was a professor at NYU Tisch school. She's really amazing woman. And it's based on the Feldenkrais method. So the Feldenkrais method is like a neuromuscular um, therapy really. And it's a way to really calm your nervous system down and rewire the way your brain views muscles. And what's so incredible is that Madeline was able to take certain Feldenkrais sequences 
and then direct you to kind of write in this state of like, I, I almost want to say total Zen. <laughs> it's like really like a calm nervous system. You're really able to get in touch with your creative voice much more than I ever was before. So I, I did this two day workshop in Jerusalem with her and it really opens up the way to creative writing for me again. I, I felt like, oh my gosh, like this is this is what I've always wanted. This is it. I want to be a writer. I want to write. And so that was when I started thinking about starting a blog and et cetera. So anyway, I got married. Um, we moved to, sorry, it spoils the end of the book. <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> I got married. Um, we moved to Los Angeles. And when I was there, I, I took the California bar so I would have it. Um, and when I was waiting for the results, I I was like, okay, I'm going to write this book. And at that point, I really felt like I was almost like pregnant with a book. Like I had in mind the story I wanted to tell and kind of how I wanted to tell it. But, you know, it's one thing to have like a vision and it's another thing to actually see it through to reality. Those are two like very different things. And a lot goes into being able to see something like a book, which is a really long term process and project to reality. So in the beginning, I was all excited and I, I couldn't stop writing and I was like so jacked up about the project and always thinking about it. And then like as time went on, it became more mundane, you know, and, it, you know, having a book is really exciting and, and sexy, but like showing up every day to write it is not. <laughs> it's very like mundane, you know, but every day my husband, thank God, he encouraged me. Did you write today? Did you write today? I had to get up and sit down and just make myself do it and at first, sometimes like it would seem like very overwhelming. Like, where do I start? And you know, what I ended up doing was I got really good writing advice to kind of just show up, write some pages, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be in the order that I wanted to write it. Just write something, you know, and eventually over time it, it adds up. So thank God I was able to do that. And I finished the first draft right before I had my daughter, Rachel, and that was in spring of 2017. So it took about a year to write the book, um, writing it part time. And basically after I had my daughter, I didn't really have the time or energy or, or mental headspace to deal with it. So I kind of like shelved the book for a while. I remember my brother came to visit and we were sitting at the Shabbat table and he, he just started railing into me like, why are you not publishing this book? Why is it sitting on a shelf? You work so hard on it. You have to do something with it. So I said, okay, you're right. So I wasn't sure what to do because postpartum, I had a lot of anxiety and depression and I wasn't really in a headspace to start publishing a book. Um, but I was like, why don't I try to see if I can get it in a magazine? You know, since I already wrote the book, it wouldn't be so much work. So I am a subscriber to Ami Magazine, so I'm pretty familiar with it. It's a Jewish magazine. And so I reached out to Rechi, the editor, and thank God she wanted to publish it. And by the way, I will say that I needed to make sure I could get my parents' blessing to to write about them in this way. And that, that was a whole other thing. But once I got their blessing, I reached out to Ami. They wanted to publish it. So that serial went on from like around Hanukkah 2018 to Hanukkah 2019. And once I finished the serial, I said, okay, now I would like to get it out in book form. So that took about a year. And now here we are with the book. Thank God. So I just want to say from that whole saga <laughs> that if you are at all creatively inclined, I would just encourage you to follow that voice and pursue it um, no matter where it takes you. Um, I find that after years of kind of burying that voice and ignoring that voice and um, beating myself up about my creative products, at the end of the day, like I just have so much joy in being able to write. So um, I encourage you to do the same if you are so inclined, just write <laughs> or create in the way that, that you love to do. 
Okay, so very briefly why I wrote this book. I grew up in the five towns. I didn't know a single religious Jew. I write about in the preface of the book how when I was about seven or eight, we moved to the town over. We moved to Hewlett um, because there were too many Orthodox people. My parents said, you're not going to have any friends. They're all going to yeshiva. You're going to public school. We're going to Hewlett, <laughs> where I was safe in a, in a Jewish secular bubble. And my, you know, I had a bat mitzvah. It was all like very superficial. I got kicked out of Hebrew school. I write about that. Um, and my real Jewish journey began when I was 19 years old. And I happened to end up on not birthright because I actually didn't get on birthright. I ended up on a trip that was more religious. I've spoken about this before in the podcast. And it really just, the teachings blew my mind. And that was the beginning of my Jewish journey. And in the book, I speak about I break the book up into three parts based on Rabbi Akiva Tatz's Living Inspired. He speaks in one chapter about the process of growth and how there's the phase of initial inspiration, right? Like I spoke about before when I was writing the book, how I was so excited to write it. There's the struggle when you struggle to kind of like stay true to your initial vision. And then there's your transcendence, your personal achievement. So I broke the book up into these three parts. I talk about my initial inspiration of falling in love with Judaism, my struggle to kind of make it my own, and then transcendence when I finally got to the point where I felt like I had made it my own. And I speak about in the preface how this pattern of growth really occurs all the time on you know smaller scales in my life and in all of our lives. So that's kind of the breakdown of the book and a little bit why I wrote it. And... I just wanted to speak a little bit about the title. Perhaps it'll give a little more insight behind the book. So the title is Princess Without a Crown, Returning to My Jewish Roots. You may be familiar with Maris Yahu's song, it's from a while back now, King Without a Crown. And I opened the book with a scene where I went to the Bahamas on spring break and how I was at a very low point in my life, perhaps the lowest point of my life. And I started singing the lyrics to the song over and over again. And it's kind of how if you're drowning, you throw Hashem a rope and he'll he'll pull you out and he'll guide you. And that's kind of what happened. It was a very subconscious moment of yearning and kind of like a big turnaround moment, even though I didn't realize it at the time fully. So that's part of it. And the other idea behind princess without a crown is, you know, growing up, I didn't really understand like what Judaism was and what it had to offer. And this immense inheritance that we have as Jews, this amazing spiritual inheritance of these, the tools. And I mean, it's, it's a total guidebook for life, you know, connection to Hashem. It's everything, you know, it's, it's the, the foundation of why we're here and what we're meant to be doing. And, you know, I didn't know any of this. I was completely oblivious to it to no fault of my parents. You know, they, they also didn't grow up observant in any way, really. So princess without a crown really alludes to the fact that as a Jewish person, you're, it's like, you're literally like a royal person, but you're a holy person. You're, you're a daughter, you're a son of the king, but you don't even know like what you have. You don't even know who you are. And I quote a quote from Robert Zangreis, which I've quoted several times on this podcast about, you know, us being able to recognize who we are as the Jewish people, that we're a holy nation and being able to reclaim our identity. So I really hope that this book will inspire people to travel their own path in the face of challenge or external pressures, be true to themselves, and then also really like reclaim their Jewish identity, whatever that means for you. You know, it means different things for all of us. The other idea behind princess is there's really like a princess motif throughout the book that it's just such an unbelievable thread in the, in the story. I don't want to spoil it, but there's a lot of divine providence with the term princess. So that also lent itself to the title as well. 
The chapter I'm going to read is right in the middle of the book, chapter 19, I gave birth to my grandmother, where I had essentially just come back from studying at Neve over the summer between college and law school. And this is right when I had gotten off the plane. My mom opens the front door to greet me and finds me wearing a long black skirt. To wear only skirts from now on is not on my list of must-keeps, but I want my parents to understand that I have changed. What are you wearing? She laughs. You look like you walked out of the shtetl. I remind her that we had bought this black maxi skirt together before I left. She thought I was going to wear it only in Israel, out of respect for the rabbis. My mom grew up with little formal Jewish education and observance, but her grandparents were from the shtetls of Poland and often spoke Yiddish. Mama and Papa, as they were lovingly called, infused my mom with a warm Jewish feeling, so my mother can understand my wanting to embrace Judaism, but only to a point. After all, I'm deviating from the plan to be a hard-working, successful lawyer in New York City, married to a rich Jewish professional, and wearing Tory Burch flats while doing it. We're supposed to be reformed, but if necessary, conservative is okay too. Don't I understand? I try to explain that I can't just pick and choose religion. I've studied the Torah and determined that there's a strong probability that it's a divine text, certainly great enough to observe it. Give me a break, Jenna, my mom says. The Torah was written by a group of men who wanted to suppress women. Mom, you're making statements based on your impressions rather than anything you actually know. You haven't studied Torah, so how can you say anything about it? I try to control my frustration as I remember the classes we had on respecting our parents. The teachers warned us that returning home to our parents might be challenging. I didn't think I would have to face the challenge head-on from the moment I got off the plane. I take a deep breath and start over. Mom, all I'm doing is adding to the values that you and Dad gave me. This was a line one of the rabbis told us might be useful when returning home. Jenna, don't give me that line the rabbis fed you, my mom answers. I suppress my laugh. I just don't understand why a girl like you, who is pretty, smart, and has so much potential, wants to live a life of such restriction. Her statement is not really a question, but I answer anyway. I explain that I've learned that true freedom isn't just doing whatever you want, which is really a kind of enslavement to your desires that doesn't usually end well. But my words fall on deaf ears. I feel like I gave birth to my grandmother, she replies. We both laugh. Mama's name was Fagel Rachel, or Fanny, as she was called in America. Mama wanted to be religious. She lit Shabbos candles every Friday night. Yet my great-grandpa was only willing to go so far. That and the tide of assimilation kept her observance at bay. You'll never find a guy with those long, slim legs covered in a skirt, my mom warns me as she heads into the kitchen. Forget about it. I let out a chuckle and roll my eyes. (laughs) Okay, so I tried to do my mom's mix of Brooklyn and Long Island accent. (laughs) There's a few points here that I want to talk about, a little bit of commentary, just to give you an understanding of the types of things that come up in the book. So I speak about how I wore a skirt I purposely wore a skirt when I came back from Israel because I wanted to show my parents that I've changed. It wasn't on my list of must keep. So what I'm referring to here is really the process of sustainable growth, where when I decided I wanted to, to, you know, practice Judaism to be more observant, I made a list with one of my mentors at Neve of must keeps, things that I would do no matter what, like a baseline level of observance when I got home. So I had kind of a concrete plan because, you know, we have 613 mitzvot, there's a lot. So, you know, I said, okay, on Shabbat, I'm not going to have my phone on and I'm going to make it a point to say Kiddush. I didn't say I'm not going to turn on the TV. You know, obviously I tried not to turn on the TV, but I wanted to be realistic and take baby steps. So that's the first thing I wanted to speak about. 
I speak about um, the path that was kind of laid out before me, the expectations that my mother had. And again, she's totally loving and well-meaning. She, she thought it was the best path possible for me, but I had this deep inner desire really to do something else with my life. And it took a long time to, first of all, confront that voice <laughs> and then actually to honor it. And so that is definitely a big theme in the book, exploring, questioning, and really following your own path. And I just want to say that, you know, we're really ultimately here to grow and to fulfill our potential in this life. So at the end of the day, even though I'm not doing exactly what my mom wanted, I think, I hope that she is still getting nachas because she's getting the joy of watching her, her daughter express herself in the way she's meant to, hopefully. <laughs> I mentioned how at this point in the book, I am confident enough that the Torah is a divine text enough to change my whole life <laughs> based upon it. And that's something that I don't just say lightly throughout, you know, prior to this point in the book, I discuss that more in depth. I touch on a point here that I think is an amazing thing that I've learned, you know, once I started learning more about Judaism is that we think like we live in a society where it's all about us all the time, you know, like iPhone, I, me, I, this selfie, you know, Picking, making my own salad at the salad bar. It's all about us and our preferences and our desires. And we have this amazing level of freedom. I mean, now with Corona, it's been restricted, but we've enjoyed such freedom in, in the world today. But what I realized is that, and what the Torah teaches us is that true freedom isn't really just doing whatever you want. And I kind of got to a point where I became jaded with the level of freedom I had when I was younger. And I saw that your desires really just pursuing your desires only t it doesn't end up in a positive place <laughs> you know like it either ends up in addiction and unfortunately I've had many friends who've gone to rehab even died unfortunately um you know so it doesn't end up in a good place just just chasing your desires and the Torah mitzvot they create boundaries in a, so that we can experience the world to maximize the pleasure out of it because for instance if you're caught and I read this recently in an amazing book called the power of tranquility by Rabbi Mayer Yedid. And he says, if you imagine your favorite meal, like your favorite steak dinner or whatever, and you, you, you have a lot of money, so you decide, okay, why am I only doing it once a month? Let me go every week or let me go every day. After a few weeks of eating this steak dinner every day, you will feel so sick because when we indulge too much in anything in this world, we lose our taste for it. It's not even enjoyable anymore. And this is why I you know, if you see like very wealthy people who just like kind of get whatever they want all the time, they're not even happy because there's no nothing special, you know? So that's what I think is so amazing about the Torah is that with these boundaries that we have, we're actually maximizing our pleasure in this world. And even more so because we're elevating it, hopefully we're connecting it to its source, which is Hashem. So I wanted to bring out that point because I think a lot of criticism when I was becoming religious is like, why would you want to voluntarily take on restrictions? <laughs> you know, and I, I'm someone who actually really does not like rules by nature. But because of what I just shared, I found that it's ultimately worth it. Because I, not just even in maximizing pleasure in this world, but wanting to have a connection with Hashem, I'm willing to, you know, play by his rules so I can have that higher level of connection with him. And the last point that I wanted to make on this chapter is the idea of respecting your parents and how, you know, throughout the book, I hope I showed that I tried to be as respectful of my parents as possible, but at the same time, I wasn't willing to compromise my observance level um, if it was something that I really couldn't do. For instance, there is a chapter where they wanted me to get in the car on Shabbos and I would not get in the car and they were very upset. But what I had learned is that 
obviously we have a major mitzvah to respect our parents. It's huge, but that doesn't come at the price of violating Jewish law. So if your parents tell you they want you to eat pork, for example, you don't have to do it. The, the refraining from eating pork comes before respecting your parents in that instance, but obviously you can say no in, in the most respectful way possible. So I just wanted to shed light there that there is this balance of, you know, observing Jewish law, but at the same time, respecting your parents in the process. Okay, that's all for now. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you haven't yet, please pick up a copy of Princess Without a Crown, Returning to My Jewish Roots, available on Amazon. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and share. And if you could write a review on Apple Podcasts, I would be so grateful. Take care.